Hello. Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. Uh, both of your hosts are old and tired. <laughs> I'm wearing a sweater that is covered in uh, possums. And I when I first that. got on here, I looked like uh, the nutty professor for some reason. My hair was everywhere. Either that or Doc Brown. You looked like the alternative Miss Frizzle. <laughs> I'm down to be alternative Miss Frizzle. Yeah, you looked like the alternative Miss Frizzle. Also, um, I did figure out. So I asked Tori this question, I think like a week or two ago, where I sent her a picture of um, seemingly straight or queer men line dancing to Kesha's Take It Off. Uh, and I asked her, how many times do I need to see this for it to be a mental illness? Turns out, that's just the TikTok algorithm, TikTok algorithming. Those there's like four or five of those videos on one account, and it's at like one specific bar, and it's all to take it off. So huh. it isn't a pathology. It's it's machine learning, which I don't think is much better. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I saw a bunch of videos of these guys doing line dancing to take it off, and it's like, huh? I wonder if this is like my new personality. It's not because line dancers don't want brown people. Ooh. Unless the brown line dancers. And we're at different clubs. That's fair. We are not at places that are playing cash. <laughs> we're not going to Cowboys. That's a that's a San Antonio reference. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people making really interesting choices at Cowboys. I've never been. I don't really have any desire to go. I never went, but it was, like, all the rage when I was in college, especially for my university. So, like, it would be, like, those videos of, like, weddings or parties where it's, like, hi, I'm this, and this is my first drink. And then, like, hours later, like, ah, my 20th drink, I'm God. Like, that was Cowboys <laughs> at my university is, like, you know, a perfectly respectable young lady would go to Cowboys and you'd see her haggard corpse wander through the dining hall at 2 30 p.m the next day <laughs> oh college choices i was such a nerd during college i didn't get crazy until like my mid-20s because that's what happens when you're a caregiver and you were raised by southern catholics i didn't go through a college party phase what I went through is an I am 23 years old plastered off my ass at on the border. Oh, okay, no. do you see a raptor? TGI Fridays. Yeah, it was on the border or Applebee's. Oh, Applebee's of the, uh, what was it, the dollar margaritas? Yep. Well, and my best friend at the time was service industry, and he worked at an Olive Garden right across from the Applebee's. So, like, they would give each other, like, service, you know, people specials and because i'm there and because i have giant tits i got those deals as well so we're just like slinging back margs of questionable value and content at like 11 39 at night it's like i didn't party in college i partied in my 20s and then i started working I remember at getting, agencies Ugh. i was insanely intoxicated and we all used to get together with the Barnes and Noble crew. So yeah, if you guys thought that she gives off this vibe, like she might have used to work for a bookstore, I did. Um, she did. To quote um, 
Kate Winslet in a movie that I can't remember the name of right now. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I've been a book slave for about <laughs> five years now. Um, that line cracked my ass up because I was like, yeah, I made it about five years and then I went on to do other things. But anyway, um, I was hammered. I was also a supervisor. I sit down at the table at Denny's. There are a bunch of people that wander in from our store. One of them is this very sweet baby angel who used to wear this jean jacket with a little fur collar and we called him Brokeback and he had no idea what that meant. And I looked at him in the eye and I said, I hope you can still respect me as your supervisor tomorrow. And he and I laughed and laughed. And then my boyfriend at the time looked at me like something was seriously wrong with me. And I went back to eating pancakes. <laughs> I love that my first concern in that story was that you were willingly at a Denny's and not an IHOP. But then I remembered where you're from. So there's yeah. less judgment. But at first, the thing that I was like shocked and scandalized about was that you were willingly at a Denny's. So for anybody who listens to this who's from Costa Mesa, which I don't think anybody is, um, it was the Denny's on Harbor Boulevard. So yeah, we saw a lot of uh, sex workers. That checks, that checks. We're avoiding talking about the book and talking about our drunken escapades because we're reading The Shining by Stephen King. This which is what kind of ties in. Yeah, it this is really what he would have wanted. Uh, message I sent Tori yesterday was, I have to go find a drinkable beer. It was a challenge. I'm not a beer drinker. Oh, funniest thing happened. Okay, so this is one of those scenarios that it's like, this is clearly someone with either like intellectual differences or severe mental illness. But because of that, I don't know how to react. So I went to Sprouts because I okay. knew they would have a single of the two beers that I drink, which are Sapporo or Kirinichiban because I am a weeb. The two beers I will drink and I will occasionally finish off a Guinness if I'm making stout brownies. I go in and there's this guy in the baked goods section because I am also in the baked goods section prowling around like a possum. And he is just hand in mouth like eating a pie. And I'm just and like employees of the store are walking around like, hey, is that good? And I didn't know how to react. So I'm just like trying to remove myself as much as I can from this situation. While also being the most curious about a scenario that I've ever been. Which is rare. Because what saves most black people is an utter lack of curiosity. That's why we always die first in horror movies. Because no, we don't want to go examine the haunted mine shaft. No, we're not going to go hang out in the house that is clearly, you know, filled with spiders and snakes and witch curses. But I was so just like, I have so many questions about what's going on. I don't want to be a narc because ACAB, if this is a person with, you know, intellectual disabilities or severe mental illness, I definitely don't want to be a narc because that ends well for that kind of person approximately 0% of the time. Fair. But also, my brother in Christ, you are sitting here doing illicit things to a half a pie inside of a Sprouts. <laughs> the best part is, this is not a Baldur's Gate 3 reference. <laughs> this, is, this is my Friday afternoon. And I'm just sitting there with my 
obscenely tall boy of Sapporo just like I want to know what's going on but I'm also the most scared I've been in a long time <laughs> so I hope Stephen King is proud of all that I've done to find one of the two possible three beers that I will stomach this can is the size of my head it is pretty massive it's, it's such a big can it is all malt, and if you know me, I handle and process malt very well. So I guess I'm not getting my flu shot today. I was like, baby, don't drink the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, fun fact about me, I'm in that uh, magical category of black person that can either process malt liquor or process poetry, and I chose poetry. I can do <laughs> malt liquor. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, some of us make sacrifices. <laughs> Why does that feel like a t-shirt? Some of us make sacrifices. Some of them choose those tall boys. Some of us choose T.S. Eliot. I chose T.S. Eliot. <laughs> but the it tall means... boy T.S. Eliot like spectrum. <laughs> but it means that my Achilles tendon, the drunkest I had ever been, was talking about Eiffel Towering at Thanksgiving with my family after four Bud Light Cranberitas. Oh. And having to explain what an Eiffel Tower was to my Catholic aunts that got me and my then best friend sent to the literal children's table that they renamed the Table of Sin. <laughs> <laughs> we got sent to the sinner's table. <laughs> my uh, sister made the mistake of when we were on vacation once explaining or like jokingly saying something about a um, dirty Sanchez and yep. uh, my mom would not let it go. She wanted to know what it meant. And this was back before she looked everything up on her phone and we yeah, were in no. freaking Heathrow airport. And she goes, I'm going to go ask that guy. If you don't tell me and my sister no. and tell her in Heathrow airport, what it meant. And then she just looks at my sister and I like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I'm not even part of this discussion. Right. Like, why am I part of this? I didn't do this. Oh, God. Uh, and then later, I knew way worse combinations based on things that people had told me that my sister knew. So, I mean, life sick, was that, was, that was the worst part of that whole conversation was acknowledging that it's like, oh, I know worse things. This is literally the chillest thing we've talked about. This evening, you just happened to listen to the part that to you is the most scandalous. We're not talking about the book. Okay, uh, so as mentioned, I found a beer. Tori, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Diet Coke because I'm, again, still on shitty medications that cause That's problems. Fine. I was off it last week so I could go drink when I was with uh, my friend. And... Um, Oh, I learned like very quickly place. that I no longer have a Viking constitution, and that was really disappointing. Yeah, that's uh, that's not fun. This smells like, this smells like I'm not getting my flu shot today. Oh. Do you want me to short story long this? Yeah, let's short story long. I'm gonna be honest. This is a very long book. I was listening to it on the plane, so um, I'm not here to judge you. Jack Torrance, a.k.a. Stephen King, is an aspiring writer and recently fired teacher. He is recover a recovering alcoholic with serious anger issues. 
Prior to the start of the story, this combo caused him to break his son Danny's arm and also assault a student at his school. He is not doing great. Uh, no. He's trying to reconnect with his young son and also with his wife, Wendy. He takes a job at this hotel called The Overlook, which for some reason seems like a great idea because it closes down for the winter months and will provide him with months of seclusion with his family. Anybody who's ever been in a domestic violence situation immediately knows that this is a bad fucking call. Um, anyway, um, during the late winter, the hotel is going to be snowed in and no one is coming back up until May 12th, which is interestingly enough, my mom's birthday. Anyway, Aww. in short, it's going to be creepy. It's going to be secluded. It's going to be a real bad idea. Oh, and the hotel mm -hmm. is also haunted as fuck. And of one of the past caretakers killed himself, his wife, and his twin daughters way back when. So Yay. it's got a reputation. Danny, Jack's son, has psychic abilities that allow him to read minds, have premonitions, and moments of clairvoyance. He gets visions from someone he calls Tony, which often shows him signs that Danny is not able to read yet. Uh, Danny is trying very, very hard to learn how to read so he can get these warnings. His parents don't really know about his psychic powers, but the hotel chef, Halloran, is like, kid, you've got what we call the shining, which is what he calls the psychic powers. Yes. Halloran, however, is fucking out of there. He's heading to Florida for the winter months. He's like asking the kid over and over in his head, are you sure you don't want to come to Florida with me? Are you sure? And it's probably got to be kind of weird to have like some older black dude asking you this question when you're five. But at the same time, it comes from a very clear place of concern, um, mm -hmm. especially because he's kind of knowing what's going on in this poor kid's head. So at first, the Torrances love the hotel. It's massive. They lived in pretty shitty apartments for a long period of time. This is all exciting and new to them. Um, but the weird stuff starts to happen pretty immediately. Danny starts to mm -hmm. see ghosts, has frightening visions. At one point in time, he has one so bad that he locks himself in the bathroom. Um, and then they take him to the doctor and the doctor's like, you're okay. You just probably having some seizures. And then all of a sudden the doctor's like, wait a minute. How did you know what your mom was thinking in the lobby? Anyway. He doesn't tell his parents about what he's seeing because he doesn't want to cause problems between his parents because he's heard their mental conversations back and forth about whether or not they should get divorced. Mm -hmm. um, Danny's presence, unfortunately, in the hotel because of his abilities is turning supernatural activity up to an 11. Um, yes. He starts to see echoes and tragedies of the hotel's past, including weird-ass party people. And the garden has topiaries that come to life, which terrifies the shit out of him. Mm -hmm. And this is all bad enough. But then the snow comes. Now, keep <laughs> in mind, weird shit has been happening that shouldn't be possible. At one point in time, mm -hmm. there is a... Um, Jack sets off a bug bomb to kill a bunch of wasps. And he sees the wasp nest and he's like... I had one of these in my bedroom when I was a kid. It's no big deal. He brings it down and he gives it to Danny and everything in it's supposed to be dead. And there's nothing running around in it or doing anything. Middle of the night, a bunch of wasps come back to life and sting the shit out of Danny. So like there are very physical actions going on here, even though Halloran's like, just remember, if you close your eyes, the shit's going to go away. It's just a memory. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing. Just let it go. So anyway, the Torrances are now cut off from the rest of the world. This should go great, right, guys? 
Um, yeah. The, Ho- the Overlook Hotel is trying so hard to possess Danny and take over him. But it can't. So it starts to go after Jack instead. Um, Jack is already very emotional. He's trying to deal with a bu- bless you, trying to deal with a Thank bunch you. of stuff. He is writing an entire play about the kid that he beat up at the school he used to work at. Um, he's trying to come to terms with a lot of stuff, which the hotel is like, yay, this sounds like a delicious meal. Um, so the hotel starts to leave little things for Jack to find, including a scrapbook that starts this fascination with the past of the hotel. Um, mm-hmm. Jack, of course, starts to get a really, really bad case of cabin fever. He goes mm-hmm. batshit. He wrecks the CB radio and the snowcat, which are the only two ways that they might be able to get out by either calling somebody or, you know, taking the actual thing to get or actual little like sled to get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Um, Wendy and Jack fight. And Jack stumbles into the hotel bar. Now, here's the thing. They make a very big point at the beginning of the book that on the the night before the hotel closes down, the staff gets hammered and gets rid of all of that alcohol. There is Mm -hmm. no alcohol on premises. It's gone, folks. There's not even cooking sherry. But when he walks into the hotel bar, it is now fully stocked. And he finds himself in the middle of a party with a bunch of ghosts and a bartender and people getting ready to count down to the new year. And he gets fucking hammered. Um, And he meets Delbert Grady, the ghost of the previous caretaker that murdered his entire family. And Grady's like, you know what, buddy? You're being a real shit dad and husband. You need to punish this family. You know what you should do? You need to murder your kid and your wife. And he's like, nah, that sounds like a bad idea. But later, it seems like a really good idea. So Wendy and Danny end up locking Jack in a pantry to try and survive the night. But the ghost of Grady releases him and tells Jack to go kill his fucking family. So poor Wendy, at one point in time, wakes up in the middle of the night. Her kid is asleep. She's like trying to keep them protected up in this upstairs room. And she goes, I think he's out. I think he's out. I have to go check. And so she goes downstairs and, of course, gets attacked. Um, he goes after Wendy with a roke mallet, which is super foreshadowed at the start of the book. I didn't realize how hard it was foreshadowed. Um, <laughs> where it's like Danny's hearing all these conversations about roke mallets and, you know, how it's different from different sports that involve like croquet. And he's like, one side has a rubber handle one si- or as and one has a hard end. And you're like, oh, shit. Um, Jack, of course, seriously injures her, including breaking her ribs, but she manages to escape to the caretaker suite and locks herself in the bathroom. Jack tries to break the door down. Wendy slices his hand open with a razor blade. Danny has managed to get out and is giving these major psychic dress calls to Halloran going, oh my God, please come back. Please come back. Please send somebody. My dad's gone fucking nuts. Um, Mm -hmm. This place is trying to kill us. And surprise, Halloran's like, oh shit, I gotta get back there. Goes through this super epic trek of getting pulled over by a white cop, um, getting on a plane, almost missing it because of the will call situation, being Mm -hmm. on a plane with a woman who is screaming that it's gonna go down and they're all going to die, driving through barricades to get to Sidewinder, which is the town outside, borrowing gloves from a guy who helps get him out of a snowbank, and then 
renting one of those cats or snow cats to get up the fucking mountain. Like this man is a fucking hero. And I think it's, it drives me crazy that he's like really acted, treated like a side character, but that's neither here nor there. Halloran nah. gets there and gets attacked by the topiary animals and then uh, gets his jaw broken by Jack and is doing all this stuff to try and save everybody. So like Wendy's trying to wake him up. Jack, like Jack is now missing a face. There's a whole thing. Anyway, uh, he chases Danny up to the top floor and corners in there. And the hotel briefly loses its psychic grip on Jack. And Jack sees that shit is about to go down, helps Danny get out. Um, but the hotel retakes control of Jack and has him, this is the part where he loses his face, has him beat in his own face and skull. So there's nothing going on up here anymore. He is now fully powered by the hotel. Um, and as he's going through all of this and they're trying to get out, he starts hearing these voices that the boiler is about to explode. And Danny mm. picks up that psychic message. And he's like, we've got to get the fuck out of here. I mean, obviously he's five. He doesn't say fuck. That's later in Dr. Sleep. Anyway, um, they get out, Wendy, Halloran, mm -hmm. and Danny, all very worse for wear. Um, and the boiler explodes, taking out the entire hotel, killing Jack, and uh, making it really, really difficult while Halloran, Danny, and Wendy go to safety. We get an epilogue later, which is kind of helpful. Normally, I'm like, eh, ever since Belcanto, that epilogue ruined that book for me. Anyway, <laughs> we find out the next summer that Halloran is the chef at a place in Maine because it's Stephen King, so of course it's Maine. And he's of comforting Danny over losing his dad while his mom recovers from her injuries. And her injuries are fucking severe to the point right. where when we get another book, Dr. Sleep, which I have not finished, I will be honest, she is, it's like, I think Danny's eight at the time when that book starts. So she's mm -hmm. still like barely able to walk. Her back is fucked up. Like it is, it was nasty. It wasn't just like a, you're hiding in the bathroom and there's a, here's Johnny. It's a, it's a miracle. You got the fuck out of there. Right. So anyway, moving on. Moving on. Uh, Listen. This might be a shock to some people. So I, I lose goth points in like two things. One, I don't like Tim Burton. Except for Sweeney Todd, which is the Tim Burton that everyone hates. <laughs> and two, I am not the biggest Stephen King fan. I will be honest. I am not a huge Stephen King fan. I read Salem's Lot and Carrie and The Shining mm -hmm. when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And that's about as far as I got. My favorite story that my mom tells is that when she was pregnant with me, she was reading the book It, and she got so upset that she threw the book across the room and never read another Stephen King book again. Yeah, and I mean, so here's the thing that I have an issue with a lot of his books is it's that, so like there's a common joke that black people don't like horror, and it's usually like, it's written off as like semi like racially insensitive, but it actually is just it's a suspension of disbelief issue. And it's also shocking, like socioeconomic. It's that we don't have the luxury or time to worry about this shit, which is why Halloran's existence is so amazing because typically like even at that time, that trope was there. 
because mm-hmm. and it goes back to much earlier racial stereotypes of black people being afraid of magic because of old witch doctors which we don't have time to unpack the racism of that but it feeds into this grander idea that especially people of color are resistant slash unwilling to be part of these narratives and it's true uh i remember i watched cujo as a movie when i was in high school and just being like so okay it's a big dog like shoot the dog it's a dog like yeah it's a big scary dog but it's a dog why is this a problem why is this a problem for two hours (laughs) uh so needless to say this was a bit of a slog for me um, but, spoiler to a note that we'll talk about later, I'm a reformed Stanley Kubrick fangirl. So I like The Shining as a movie, at least the first time I saw it, when I was dumb enough to still think that Kubrick was some visionary. We're getting Kubrick slander today. <laughs> uh, I've, had, I've had approximately half an ounce of beer, we're getting Kubrick slander. so there's a lot to unpack with this book uh, which is frankly too much because a lot of people are like oh it's just a pop culture book it's just it's It's, like it's not it's something that i find really really interesting is horror and sci-fi and romance and fantasy are all usually thrown into this category of this is all just pulp fiction there's no point there's nothing of value in them which is bullshit because a yes. lot of the classic literature that we have would be considered fantasy or sci-fi or horror in the modern genre. It's a yeah. publishing thing to try and get you to buy it, guys. I hate to tell you this. The whole purpose of publishing is to make fucking money. Yeah. And it's also, like, not subtly sexist as well. Like, <laughs> Yeah. So, okay, so listeners of this show might not know that my other show is about queer media from Japan. So we talk about this shit all the time, that, like, the politics of labeling something under one genre, under another genre, under a third genre, are all, like, not subtly sexist. So, like, there is power in saying that something is queer but marketed at women versus something that is queer and marketed at queer people. So you'll get a lot of these stories that are high-key problematic because they're queer stories written by cis straight women that perpetuate stereotypes that are negative about queer people because it's more marketable to market at cis het women. But stories that are queer stories about queer people are not marketed the same way. And even though those are also often problematic, it's an in-group versus out-group version of being problematic. So yeah, this kind of stuff is always written off. And it's really in a way to there's a great the there's a great um the take video about why like male culture is viewed as still as like highbrow, even though objectively now it's not, versus why women's culture is considered to be lowbrow. Like right now you'll see some content creators talking about like the mcu like it's citizen kane it's not it's not it's not it's not it's fun i like the mcu but it's not the maltese fucking falcon but because that then, is have you seen the maltese falcon 
Have you actually seen the Maltese film? Here's the thing. I, I love old noir film. And I'm going to tell too. you right now, the highbrow shit. shit reputation that it gets is not, not warranted. It's right. Not and, it's, warranted. and it's all perpetuated by white men of status. And like, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I fell out of love with Stanley Kubrick is watching how his work became this like gatekeeper thing of like oh well you're you're a brown girl you, you don't understand kubrick it's like what's there to understand he's a man who clearly hates women and has issues with his own jewishness there there's deeper meaning behind eyes wide shut outside of bastardizing and adaptation and torturing tom cruise which i'm all in favor for personally it's like <laughs> personally i'm all in favor of torturing tom cruise but it's like you're using this as a weapon. You're using it as a bludgeon and it's not. And I don't think Kubrick would ever want that. But that's what got me to finally pull the wool over my eyes as far as being a Kubrick stand because I saw how especially like white male society used him as like this litmus test of like, oh, well, you, you didn't understand a clockwork orange. Did you understand a clockwork orange? Because you aren't the hero. No. I and think I understand. The slang is in Russian, and most people didn't need that anyway, which cracks me up. I'm like, um, do you guys get you guys get what he's doing here, right? Yeah, are you guys are, are we watching? Doing? Yeah, are we watching the same movie? Because Jack Torrance isn't the hero. No, okay. You're not supposed to look at him and be like, yeah, that's a chill guy with some good points. So I will say something that I have really enjoyed seeing recently, and it's with the yes. rise of I know shit like TikTok is that we're seeing a lot more independent queer horror writers actually yes. get attention. And yes. it means we get a slew of books now that I'm like, I love this. It is mm -hmm. written beautifully. It is mm -hmm. really capturing because you get a lot of the, the otherness. You get the sense of the otherness, mm -hmm. um, which is what a lot of horror and a lot of monster fiction does is it acts as a a doorway to allow somebody with a different experience to come through and say mm -hmm. some shit that they would not be able to say otherwise. Um, right. It's there are quite a few books on the market analyzing his the history of horror and being like, look, do you see how this person is coded as queer? Mm -hmm. Do you see how this person is the other? Mm -hmm. Do you see how everyone is hesitant to be anywhere near this because they're worried that it will spread to them especially in vampire fiction right um, i actually have a bunch of books on that on my wish list including some talking about just like the implications of african-american vampires mm -hmm. because there was like this run of like african-american vampire stories in, like the 70s and 80s and it was subtly not coded as being AIDS crisis related almost like that's why it was weird when blade did it in the 90s because it was very subtly not, you know, implied to have been AIDS crisis related. Almost like that's a problem. Um, so, yeah, you have to consider what these monsters and creatures are always representing in these stories. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why, especially in hindsight, because we have to give credit to where credit is due. For us, The Shining is not new literature to us. This is... This has a sheen to it that the people that are slightly older than us have a respect for it that I'll go ahead and say, I felt like I had to inherit. You know, we talk about, you know, this pinnacle of especially, you know, nerd culture, that it's all clout, which was set up by men who wish to gatekeep women. 
But there's this huge clout game in nerd culture that makes you kind of feel like you have to like these things. And Stephen King was one of them. And I hate that he's part of it because I think he's one of the most insufferable parts of it. He's not the most insufferable part of it. I still think that's Tim Burton. <laughs> See, like you can't. I yes. like Stephen King as a person from what no, I I've think, seen and see how I he interacts with the world. I like that. Um, he reminds me a lot of how I feel about John Green. Ah, uh, okay. Like, as a writer, writer, I think you're super fucking trite, and I hate what you've done to certain genres. But as a human being and an advocate, pop off, sis. But, like, him as a writer, and I guess it is because, like, I do lack that 20, 30 years of reverence for him. That is just sort of like, okay, The Shining's fucking weird. What's going on with it? What's what's happening with that? I mean, outside of, I love the Tim Curry version because he's just a weird, drunk old clown. I will say, though, a lot of the horror and a lot of the, the stuff that we have, um, we wouldn't have without Stephen King. And I can ignore that. Um, yeah. God, I'm not nagging him for no reason. What was the Netflix show? Because this is going to kill me now. The Netflix show where everyone was becoming a vampire in a small town. I don't uh, remember. Okay. It was, I'm trying to remember, the, the guy who's doing, um, wow, brain, come on. You can come back. Um, the Poe book. The House of Usher. Um, oh, the Demeter one? No, that one was really good. No, The Fall of the House of Usher, there's a TV show that's coming out. Um, mm -hmm. The director, Mike, I'm like, come on, I can do this. And I know people are yelling at home. Mike Flanagan, we would not have the shit that we have. We would not have had that without the inspirations of things like Salem. Midnight Blood Mass. And Midnight Mass, thank you. You're welcome. That the way that show is paced, the way that certain characters reveal themselves, it's yes. very Stephen King. And yeah, it's and, it, and it was something that people hadn't seen in publishing before, which is probably one of the mm -hmm. reasons that he's got like over 80 books. Um and I can respect that. Like I'm not nagging Stephen King. Like I can acknowledge like really put this on me. This is a quote unquote failing on my part that I'm too black and too queer and too failing that I'm too black I'm too queer <laughs> I'm too woke to you know 40 years at this stage be removed from this stuff because if I oh, grew I'm up hmm? sorry go ahead I just I think if I grew up with this being like a better part of my cultural lexicon yeah, I probably would have very different feelings about it. But keep in mind, like, I don't think I watched the 1990s TV movie of It until it was, like, my late 20s. So I have decades of hindsight. Like, I didn't watch Cujo until I was in my teens. So I have all of these years of hindsight that I wouldn't have had if I was, you know, 20 years older or something like that. That's all I'm saying. Gotcha. So... One of the things that this book does kick me in the guts, though, is there's, I mean, obviously it was written a long ass time ago. Very so there is ago. a lot of very big cultural changes that have happened. Mm -hmm. um, ways that Wendy is described. Yes. Um, I don't know what the fuck Stephen King was obsessed with, like, 
describing cum coming out of her body. But even when I read this in high school, that part just gave me the serious ick. I'm like, bro, bro, what the yeah. fuck? Did, was that necessary? And it's not like the only time he does it. He's like very big about like, let me just describe like her body and shit. And it's like, you, wh why? Why? The, there's, there's nothing that has to do with the plot. The thing that I love too, and this is going to be an anecdote later on, is that mm -hmm. his wife Tabitha has before offered to help him write women. And I just think that that mm -hmm. is beautiful. Um, but like the way Halloran is described and the way a lot of Halloran's yeah. experiences, especially when the hotel is getting in his head are described, are yeah. very stereotypical toward yeah. communities of color. Um, at one point in time, the doctor is talking about Danny possibly having autism and how that is described in the book just made me go, Oh, fuck. I forgot that, like, in the 70s and the early 80s, that was often yep. seen as a death sentence, regardless of how yep. functional you were on the spectrum. Yeah, I mean... It's the wrong word. I mean, support-wise, but... No, I get it. It's... But and it's fascinating, again, because, like, going back and having the benefit of all of this stuff... It's really difficult. It's not impossible. Like, I'm not, this isn't going to be the book that I judge people on. Like, there are other worse books that I can imagine that it's like, if you're defending this too hard, I have some questions. But yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I compared him to like John Green is that it's like, there's just some choices that are made in writing that I don't understand and I can't, and I don't like your work enough to help you rationalize it. And, like, I mean, I, I struggle to think of that with any writer that I have now. Like, I, I don't even go to bat for Ed Grail and Poe anymore. It's like, yeah, he was a weird cousin fucker. He was a weird little cousin fucker. And, like, that means that there's some weird shit in his stories. Still beautiful. But he was a weird man. And we're not going to ask questions about that too much. But, like, yeah, because John Green has that problem for me when he writes consistently romance about teenagers. Yeah, I have some questions as to why a 50-year-old man continues to do that and writes, like, weird scenes about, like, women's perky breasts and stuff. Like, I have some questions about that. As I feel like any reader should have some questions about that. I think he's a great guy, obviously. I love him as a culture critic, much in the same way that I love Stephen King as someone who is a media critic and media scholar. But yeah, when you start talking about come oozing out of bodies in the way that like I wrote it when I was writing fanfic when I was 12 before I even knew what ejaculation was we have an issue and it's it's I think my critique of it is it just feel felt so out of place it wasn't it's a work on erotica it wasn't a romance novel it wasn't no. it it had nothing to do with the actual act itself other to, than to be like I possess her. Yeah. And it's, it's that done entirely voyeuristically as a creator. Yeah, and that was enough in the beginning for me to be like, this woman is in fucking danger. Yeah. Yeah. And that also, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about the Kubrick movie, but that was one of the biggest issues that I had about that moving forward is how that is portrayed with Shelley Duvall and how terribly she was treated. Oh yeah. Um and so, I something yes. that, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. 
So I was gonna say the weird, crazy thing about this book too is Stephen King does make a very big point of Jack Torrance when he's not under the influence of something versus mm -hmm. Jack Torrance when he is under the influence of something. And mm -hmm. I know we're, we're gonna talk a little bit about alcoholism and stuff like that. But when we he's are. not influenced by anything, he acts like this very loving husband. He talks about how he's much a he chill loves guy. his child. He's very protective. But mm -hmm. the second that you have either the hotel's influence or alcohol or both, mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. becomes possessed for lack mm -hmm. of a better term. And I think that that is a huge point that that tries to this book tries to make. It's very much a you can be an incredible human being, but once that substance is in you and once you let yourself go to that substance, you are no longer the person that you think you are. Correct. And I think that's one of those things that depending on your mileage will determine how much you're willing to give that a pass. Um, I know for me with my history of being dangerously close to having substance abuse issues, I definitely don't give that as much of a pass as some other readers right. might. Uh, but I don't think that that's inherently negative. I think if anything, that really heightens to the story because I think one of the good things that the book does is that even though you do clearly have this oppressive um, specter of either the hotel or the horrors of substance abuse, you are never meant to scapegoat what Jack is doing. Right. That even if it is, you know, the booze and the demons, you are still meant to vilify Jack in a way mm -hmm. that I think a weaker writer would not have been able to maintain. And I think to unfortunately praise the Kubrick film, Jack Nicholson does a great job of that because he's yeah. Jack fucking Nicholson and he's scary. <laughs> the weird thing is I will always remember him in Little Shop of Horrors, the Roger Corman version, where he yes. looks up and he says, no Novocaine, please. I will always remember that because it's just this relatively, by my, by, you know, cultural standards attractive man with this look in his eye like he is going to burn everything down telling yep. you that he wants pain yep i also love you rationalizing that jack nicholson is a problematic hottie he is problematic yeah i mean problematic like characters that he plays i don't really know about him as a person and i don't want to know no uh, he's problematic as a person oh yeah. no oh no are we talking like mel gibson problematic or like no. Like Al like Alice Cooper problematic? Like what level of problematic? More, more Alice Cooper problematic, I feel like. Oh, so he's just a crotchety old white man. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I mean that's not that's not that's not the past, but like okay. That, Did you just say that were you just acting like that wasn't a deal breaker? <laughs> <laughs> like, I can work with that. Hold on. I can work with that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, I mean I I maintain that the only, there are two rom coms that I like. One is under the Tuscan Sun. And the other is something's got to give where <laughs> Jack Nicholson is the worst romance writer in the world. And oh him God. and Diane Keaton are the cutest couple that I've ever seen because he's actually trying to fuck Diane Keaton's daughter and then falls in love with Diane Keaton. And Diane Keaton is just this coastal grandma. And he goes to Paris to meet her because Diane Keaton starts dating Keanu Reeves. And he goes to Paris to make her fall in love with him which is not abusive or manipulative in any way he goes to paris to sabotage her date 
which is not a red flag at all. And he just bears his shut up. <laughs> which is not at all flag, concerning. Flag, flag, flag. Flag. What is it's this? Also, the Edward Rochester School of Flag Giving? It is. Literally, it's so funny because everything about what I find romantic and weird is easily explained by the fact that my two favorite rom-coms are Under the Tuscan Sun and Something's Gotta Give. I don't like The Notebook. I don't like any oh. of that shit. Give me Something's okay. Gotta Give. If you want to watch me have a complete meltdown talking about a romance, we can talk about The Notebook, about how much I fucking hate that movie. Oh. Yeah, we're never gonna but do I, that because I, we hate it. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't think we have time. <laughs> we we physically, spiritually, emotionally do not have time for all that that would um entail. Entail. So I think we so we need to talk about weird hotels and hotels are a weird like liminal backroom space where they're an approximation of a home, but clearly not a home. Um, they're also quite. Well, they are now the symbol of luxury. They weren't always, but that is another thing that white people have appropriated and gentrified. Yeah, it used to be a place that it was like a way station for you. So you, before yeah. you went on someplace else. Um, yeah. You, you were wealthy. You usually stayed with people who you were related to or somebody that you'd made a connection with in their home. Um, yeah. Especially in... Um, like Eastern seaboard culture and stuff like that. We yeah. move a little bit away from it as people start to move westward. Mm -hmm. But, um, well, as white people start to move westward, let's be honest. Um, yeah. And then you have things like the boarding house, which were considered right. supposed to be temporary housing until you got something else. But a lot right. of times just it ended up being where you were. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's interesting to think about it that, yeah, like, Nowadays, the reverse is true, that you are seen poor if you can't afford to stay at some place that is objectively more expensive. Or that's the frugal choice, and depending on what phase of society you're in, frugal is either seen as a pious virtue or a hideous uh, malappropriation of capitalist society. Spoiler alert, it's how much money you have in your bank account. Accurate. Accurate. Um... And also how much money the other person has in their bank account, because there's a big difference, like asking to stay in my one bedroom apartment than me asking my aunt who has a cleaner's quarters to stay in her California home. Damn. Right. Those are two different asks. <laughs> but I promise like, you, I thought, we're, me. I thought we were fancy because we had a guest room. <laughs> Yeah, she has um she has a mother-in-law suite and a cleaner's quarters in one of her homes. Cleaner's Damn. quarters, right? The irony of being black and owning homes like that and just being like, oh, this was for us. <laughs> this was oh, fun, fun story. So a lot of my clients right now are real estate. So I have to like tag images that are like interiors. I am waiting for them to notice that I stopped using master bedroom and master bathroom because it's racist. Yeah. 
I'm waiting for them to notice that I've stopped saying that entirely. No one has caught it yet. But I'm someone eventually is going to be like, why doesn't this say master bedroom? Like, because it's racist. End of sentence. <laughs> Walk away. <laughs> Uh, but hotels are weird, and the idea that hotels can have, like, this power over you um, is, I think, pretty accurate. I'm someone who loves and thrives in hotels. Hotels are some of my favorite things because I love being in places that I don't have to be responsible over. Breakfast is someone else's problem. If I don't have hot water, that is someone else's problem. If there's a bug, that's someone's problem. It's one of the reasons I love renting apartments. Things are not my problem. I have a lot going on up here in my brain. I can't focus on like drywall issues. Um, but I also understand that for some people, hotels are this really weird like othering like liminal space mm -hmm. of like they all look the same. And like that uniformity to me is actually very comforting that I can like. And it terrifies the shit out of me. I, I hate it. I hate the I love it. in San Antonio. Like I, I did love not it. want to move into the house that we live in because I was like, it looks like every other fucking house on the block. Well, okay. I don't like it in houses because that feels like inherently racist to me because it is. Uh, but like in hotels, like that level of uniformity, I find very comforting in the way that I find like chain restaurants very comforting because, okay. So one thing very, very specific to my trauma and that people that are neurodivergent can also probably relate to is um, fear of disappointment. Yes. And one thing that is very, very comforting about a lot of experiences with chains is that regardless of where you go, the quality is all about the same. A McDonald's in San Antonio is a McDonald's in Topeka is a McDonald's in Vienna. That's all going to be McDonald's versus a smaller restaurant could have varying levels of quality. And especially if you are neurodivergent in some way, that can be a debilitating experience. One that neurotypical people don't always understand. Like, yeah, like having a bad lunch can ruin my day. And it isn't just because I'm fat. <laughs> I was going to say there, there is a lot of, of study in that too, especially children and, and young adults and even moving on. Mm -hmm. Uh, with neurodivergency is you mm. will see a lot of folks eat what's considered to be junk food. Um, yep. Although I don't consider Cheez-Its to be junk food um, because <laughs> it has a standard consistency. Whereas yep. if you're having grapes, you don't know if you're going to get a sour grape, you're going to get a sweet grape. It um, could be mushy. It, it could be weird. The consistency could be completely different. I think we've all had that experience where you get to the bottom of the, the grape bag and go, I don't want to eat that because I'm pretty sure it's squishy. Um, yeah. Well, maybe just the way our brains work. But anyway, neither here nor yeah. there. Um, it's also... You see Neurodivergency issues. The anxiety, yes. you just want something to work out and be exactly how it's supposed to be and be yep. in the condition that you think it's going to be. Yep. And that it's just going to be the one thing you don't have to worry about today. Yep. And that's me. That's, that's me to a T with my anxiety, with my depression. That's one of the reasons why I love things like hotels that I can get in. Whatever I was worrying about is no longer my problem. Breakfast will be served promptly at six o'clock in the morning. And it's one of the reasons why, fun fact about me, I'm not a Karen in a lot of situations because I've been former service industry. Hotels, I am ruthless. I'm never rude. But if something is wrong in a hotel, 
I am the first person to say something is wrong and I'm disappointed in this experience because that is something that I am expecting to be okay. And when it isn't, that is violently disappointing and distressing to me because then that's where the weird part comes in. You are not in control. Do you think that that's why the overlook is so terrifying? Because the expectations that you have of a hotel are not what's there. The standard uniformity yes. and protection is not there. You have a woman in 217. You see her body, even though it's technically not there. You have people who are severely kink-shamed. Um, <laughs> although the, no dog, the dog thing is a lot. Um, so yeah, you got to yeah. throw it out there. In the book, there is a huge party. This is not really something that these the parts that I'm about to discuss are not in the movies. Um, no, at least they can't I don't be. remember the 97 one very well. But a man walking around acting like a dog, a woman who's wearing something that is very, very see through. Um, yes. A lot of the stuff that's going on at the party is kink coded, um, but yeah. it is kink coded in a way that is very detrimental it's like looking yes. at 50 shades versus we're looking at althea of sex wizards and i know you guys out there are gonna laugh at me for enjoying the sex wizard series i don't give a fuck althea fast is incredibly inclusive with her kink stuff it is incredibly well written and it is a surprising delight in the indie circle i highly recommend it ha so I will say this about the dog stuff, like that guy, that costume is in the movie and it's weird it. and it's it. uncanny, but also that's Kubrick who clearly has issues with King stuff, stares long and hard and eyes wide shut. Do you know that I've so, never seen eyes wide shut? You know, out of all the movies that I'm going to say you're not missing anything, you're really not. I would read the book that it's inspired by. I think that's right up your alley because it feels like a doll's house, but sadder. Ooh. Yeah, it's basically a doll's house, but sadder and more sex. Hey, you like sex and depression? <laughs> and I think it's Russian, too, or like like in that vicinity. So, like, read the book or the play that it's inspired by. I don't think anyone needs to watch Eyes Wide Shut ever again. Unless, unless you watch the behind the scenes stuff where it's just Tom Cruise talking about all the ways that Kubrick made his life difficult. Like he is intentionally framed as the least sexy person in every room, including him getting cucked by his wife on a numerous um, bits of occasions. People make fun of him and call him the F slur. And this is like peak Tom Cruise. This is Tom Cruise at his hottest and least Scientology crazy. That they, Kubrick goes out of his way to degrade and make him look and feel awful. Which I, I personally am a huge fan. <laughs> I was going to say there are a lot of people who are into that. I personally am a huge fan. Please ruin Tom Cruise's day. All right. Let's talk about uh, twins being scary and weird. So the funny thing is, because twins run in our family, I'm like, they're not scary and weird. And then I'm like, okay, they're a little scary and weird. Like, oh, fuck, they're scary and weird. <laughs> so, personal anecdote, my niece and my nephew are obviously fraternal twins because it would be impossible. Well, we won't go into that. That's gender politics. Um, we don't have time for that. So we don't have time for that. Um, 
she is so protective of him. He is on mm. the spectrum. Um, and so she, for the first several years of their life, would speak for him. And we'd be like, no, honey, he needs to speak for himself. We know you're just trying to protect and, and make sure brother is okay. But he needs to mm. he needs to learn how to talk for himself because you may not always be in the same classrooms. And just the look she would give us of, we're not going to be in the same classroom? Oh, hell no. This guy's with me. <laughs> like, um, But it's in this book, twins, again, are considered to be this very scary othered thing um yes. and we don't the funny thing is with grady we don't really get a whole lot of descriptions other th of them other than the shorthand that they're twin girls and it's creepy yeah and there's a lot of um cultural and superstitious nonsense that goes into mm -hmm. occasionally why people think that twins are weird i am an only child i only knew one set of identical twins when i was in school and like, but they were such different people that like, even though like they looked the same, they were their own individuals. Oh, absolutely. Like it wasn't ever like a, oh, I'm talking to one person, but it's the other. Like that wasn't a thing. And I think that sometimes like parents don't give kids enough credit. Like kids aren't dumb. They're not. Like, we're, we're not stupid. Like I know well, that this is. But they're not dumb. Well, they're. They're usually assholes because they lack empathy. And that's just being a kid. Like, part of child psychology is being incredibly self-absorbed because that's all you have. Um, unless you're like me, where you had a bad childhood. And all of your focus is on pleasing the adults around you so they continue to take care of you. <laughs> yeah, the super over-empathetic... Yep. Um... Things that, that come up when you've been a parent's caretaker. Yep. As a very at a very young age, it's very different. Also, how it expresses when you get older and you learn to yep. set your own boundaries. And you're like, boundaries? What are those? Uh my favorite part is uh of, of my trauma journey is explaining to my aunt that the things that she thinks are positive aspects of my personality are trauma responses. It's like, oh, you get along so well with everyone. Yeah, because I had to. Because otherwise, you guys had vo volatile personalities. And if I risked upsetting you, you could physically or emotionally hurt me. Th th this isn't a positive. This is bad. Like, I, I lack personality in some scenarios because I'm afraid so those have been very, very fun conversations. Don't ever go to a hotel with your aunt who you've had a complicated history with that gives you two free drinks a night. Oh, dear. <laughs> and no food. River. We have a cat sighting. She She's like, like I, hear you guys, I hear you guys talk about sad shit. Uh, so <laughs> twins are there to make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, but also... Don't sexualize twins, especially when no, they're cured. People do it's that and it's weird. weird. It's so fucking weird. They do it, uh, they do it to yes. too and it's weird. It's yeah. like... And it's so fucking weird. Uh, why do people do that? Why do, why do people do that? It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Like, why Why do you feel... It's in Baldur's Gate 3. Okay, listen. Baldur's Gate 3 has been your entire personality for weeks. <laughs> yeah, I and know. I, I and I don't know what to say because I'm, I'm at like the exasperated boyfriend part where it's like oh, it makes her happy 
It's like, it's just, it makes her happy. Just let her do it. But then I'll go check and like everything on your TikTok is just Baldur's Gate 3. And I haven't played, so it makes no sense to me. But I've seen that pasty twinks asshole so, so much on Twitter. So over it. So over Astarian. And here's the thing. I love Neil Newman. I love him. He is an incredible voice actor. I think he's fabulous. I don't understand why that is the character that... Okay, I do understand why that's the character everyone gravitates to. I was about to say, you're a horrible liar. Yes, you do. I have have, uh, many other characters that I am way more interested in. Which I have have become... Everything I know about Baldur's Gate has been against my will. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Winter. Uh, It's bad, cold, and dark. And that's also, again, another cultural thing as well yes it's um winter was the time for introspection it was the time that you um went inside and who the fuck is um huh who the fuck who the fuck is doing introspection during winter sorry a lot of people um it was the time where you told stories it was the time where you looked at your reserves and went okay what do we do if something bad happens how do we keep our family alive huh like, you're talking about, like, druids and shit. Black people don't have time for this. <laughs> like, who the fuck is getting introspective during winter? Well, I mean, like, any place in Eastern Europe and what? Oh, a lot no, of I get Europe it. I get it. Like that, where you you spent the summer and the fall putting your shit, your reserves together. Yes. And then you were like, God, I hope I don't have a baby in the middle of winter. Like. <laughs> there was a. I was I was watching this documentary and I told Tori about it where it was um the baby boom that happened in the Philippines during COVID. And a lot of it is down to like a f- semi-fascist sexist regime. A lot of it is Catholic guilt and a lot of it is low education and poverty. But like just the utter lack of understanding for some of these women that it's like, oh, if I have sex, I'm going to have a baby. And what people were doing a lot during COVID during in the Philippines is having sex and being shocked that babies came. And it was one of those weird things that I thought of that it's like, I have, so I'm usually aware of my privilege in like one or two places, usually like educational and socioeconomical. I'm not always aware of how deeply privileged I can be in comparison to other people like that was such a gut check of being like I am so lucky that despite my family being very Catholic they understood birth control was a thing and didn't shame me over it when my godmother did and it caused a problem in the family uh but it was just one of those moments where like yeah I can understand that for some people you know introspection happens in the winter i think also the big thing culturally about winter is that it is it's sad it's sad it's cold and you're inside and you know for us texans we have a failing power grid and some of us can die again well also with with our culture and in the book kind of pulls this as well is as long as everything is working normally, as long as you have the food and you have access to communication to the outside and you have ways mm-hmm. to get out, it's mm-hmm. fine. You know, it's great. Yeah, you fine. learn how to adapt to it. However, nature is a very powerful thing. Um, and yeah. we get this false sense of security in all things of I'm going to be fine. 
you know, I've got yeah. these these things that are going to work. They're not going to fail. It's going to be great. And then all you have right. you have to do is have one 2021 uh, breakdown where ev- the power goes out. Nobody has water. Nobody has power for several days. Multiple right. And society die. crumbles. And, you know, right. I, I will land the plane, I promise. But like, I remember watching Monster Quest and one of the, the experts was talking about like the the relative intelligence of like chimps. Because there's people that still like to like primates aren't intelligent. And um, he said this thing that sticks to me always. And it's like, my ability to do calculus means nothing in the jungle. Right. And that's true. Like if we were in like a Lord of the Flies scenario, my ability to recite the albatross by Charles Baudelaire is not going to be the skill that saves me. That's not going to be it. (laughs) Oh my God. It, but it, it is very much this this false sense of security that we have. Same yeah. thing with things like earthquakes and hurricanes. And I mean, that's why what's interesting to me is a lot of the beliefs in, you know, like early animism and, and early pagan mm-hmm. stuff was you, especially in like the UK and, and Western Europe, it was very initially very much our gods are based off of the rivers. They're based off of water sources. They are based off of mountains. They are based off of land. They are based off of things that if they change their mind, we are fucked. Um, yeah. And that definitely moved away with the movement of Christianity and stuff. It became, oh, okay, well, we are able to subjugate the earth and the animals, and these are under our purview. It's a very different way of thinking. Um, so right. it's became one of those things where you're like whatever it's a river it's fine until that river overflows and destroys your farm um, exactly or you're in a hotel and everything's fine so it's not the end of the world that your husband destroyed a cb radio until everything comes to life and the winter tries to kill you correct uh we're gonna briefly talk about writers being crazy they're yeah, we are yeah because we don't have time for that. also it's just true um I am not a big fan of the myth of the torture artist, but with writers, it's true. All of us are insane. None of us are well-adjusted. All of us have problems. And I think part of that is what gears us to be become writers. writers. It is, I want to be able to put down these massive experiences that are running through my head on paper to try and get them out. Yes. Um, Which is great, because I also see this with fan fiction writers as well, of... I, I have all of these theories and all of these things that will not leave my head alone. I'm putting them on yep. paper. Oh, look, other people have the same feelings. But it's the same right. thing with writing a novel or writing a play or even writing a song. It is getting that. Well, songs and poetry are very similar. Um, but it's mm. getting that shit out of your head, getting those experiences out of your body where they are wrecking havoc and putting them someplace else. And every once in a yeah. while... Someone else gets excited about that experience because they understand. Tori, do I want a seven-inch old-timey Western uh, feed store birdhouse? I need you to know that when you started with a seven-inch thing, I had no idea where that conversation was going to go. 19 inches of venom? (laughs) Oh, 19 inches of venom. No! Okay. Uh, Um, It's a birdhouse. Where are you going to put a birdhouse? outside what is- do you get birds yeah yes victoria do you get yes where do you think birds do you think white people have gentrified birds they don't get birds on this side of town 
<laughs> no, that's not what I meant. I just we meant have birds. Not to triangulate your location, I'm just saying that you have kind of an enclosed porch situation going on, so I wasn't sure. No, we get birds. I saw a Carolina chickadee a couple of weeks ago. Look at you knowing names. I'm like, that one's green. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bird. Uh, but yeah, writers if are crazy. It, if it looks too big and it's black, it's a crow. If you look at a black yes. bird and it's massive and you go, oh my god, what the fuck is that monster? It's a raven. That's a raven. But also, if you see one of those in Texas, that's an escaped pet. Because we don't have those down here. We actually do have ravens in our area. We do. You, are, just... you are a whore and a liar. We do not have ravens in Texas. I looked it up. Oh shit, we have, okay, we have the Chihuahua raven. Yeah, it's like one. I'm not saying we have like 47. Yeah, okay, yeah, fuck off. I'm like, excuse okay. you. I'm thinking, okay. I'm thinking the ravens from the fucking raven. No, we have, no. We have glossier grackles. Yeah. Grackles are basically stupid crows. They are wish.com crows. They are the crows they're that you get off Tenu. They're not stupid, though. They are low quality, but they're not stupid. Okay. They're uh, not dumb. But they're they are highly but they are wish knockoffs. Yeah, but they are wish knockoffs. So writers being crazy, that checks. And of course, Jack being a writer with all of his crazy and all of his substance issues, that also checks. This beer is so big. I'm going to make brownies, I guess. So something that, that I, I find interesting, too. a lot You hear this advice when you first start writing, especially when you're younger. Write what you know. So that's why you will see so many fucking Stephen King books where his main character is a writer. Okay? It's, it's very, King. very common in horror. It's very common in a lot of writing where the main mm. character is a writer because we're supposed to write what we know, which I think is bullshit. So I have a love-hate relationship with that. Uh, well, not write what you know, because if I have one more novel written, obviously, by a white person about brown people, I will find you. Because you can tell. Um, oh, or yeah. one more queer story written by straight people. Stop it. But Stephen King's self-insert Mary Sudom is parodic. Like, every work he has, he is somehow the MC of the story. Down to these characters looking like him, including the shoestring ponytail writer in It. You think we'd forget, Stephen? We haven't forgotten. And um, this bleeds into the, anytime there's a movie or film adaptation, he tends to be mm -hmm. in it. Very briefly, he's, but he's yeah. there. It's kind briefly, of like but he's Stan there. Lee. <laughs> yeah we see how well that went over for stan lee guy who clearly made up all of the ideas that he made millions off of right in no way was jack kirby responsible for a lot of that what my my favorite memes after <laughs> stan lee died were the people that were like oh jack kirby is gonna be so happy to see him and it's like <laughs> <laughs> about that one buddies and like there was one where it was like jack kirby and like walt disney like opening their arms to hug stan lee in heaven and it's like first of all that you assume that walt disney's in heaven that's a stretch second of all that stan lee is going to heaven 
also a stretch. Third of all, that those men would embrace each other. <laughs> there would be a full on like Alabama, Alabama slammer, like folding chair fight between Jack Kirby, Walt Disney, and Stan Lee all happening. All like three against three. <laughs> I just imagined Walt Disney with a cigarette hanging out of the side of his mouth as he's holding a yes. chair. It's got like a Mickey Mouse cut out in the center. Because <laughs> that's what would happen. Like there were so <laughs> many memes of like, oh, well, Stan and Jack are finally making comics together in heaven. And it's like, yeah, and I'm sure Bob Finger and Bill Kane are having some lovely conversations right now in heaven too. <laughs> I'm sure they're having some great talks right now. I was like, bold of you to assume that Jews believe in heaven. Anyway. Bold of me to assume that regardless of religious status that any of those horrible racist capitalists are going anywhere. I think what, what fascinates me is just as, as a culture to have this, this image of Christian heaven. And that's the only thing. And mm -hmm. it, it cracks me up because there are thousands of cultures with concepts of the afterlife thousands yes. and they're way fascinating but we end up going but this one with a guy with a really big beard that's what's going to happen and it's like because it's easiest to understand and it's the most narratively fulfilling and you don't have to worry that you're going to be uh put into a possibility of three different areas depending on how much of a human being you were i mean that too like it's, well, I mean, it's really it's short in purgatory but anyway I mean, it's it's shorthand. Like, I'm not I'm not advocating and saying that's right, obviously. But like, I mean, Dante Alighieri and his fan fiction really did. <laughs> it is one hundred percent fan fiction. It's my favorite. It's the self insert Mary Sue fan fiction, which is my let's favorite. Say, let's say fuck off. Like I'm wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. That's like my my favorite. That's what I, I laugh so hard about when people are like talking shit on fan fiction because I'm like. It's literally just Bible fan fiction. It's his fan you fiction. You read the Divine Comedy? You read like, Paradise Lost? Huh? Yeah. With his favorite character as his guide. It's literally fan fiction. Okay, so we're going to talk about uh, kids with psychic powers. Uh, this is something that people say a lot about children, that they have like weird like paranormal abilities because their minds are not cluttered. Fun fact, when my dad was going to a weird cult church, I faked a religious vision for attention. If I say that 100% tracks, am I going to get in trouble as your friend? Because out of all the things that I could say, is that not something I would do as a child? No, 100% it is what you would do as a child. And I did. I did. Uh, I faked a religious vision. And I loved the attention of being a minor celebrity for a little while until I started playing Pokemon and then I was suddenly a hellion. Mm. Because that was demon stuff. Well, oh, and I couldn't read tiny, Harry Potter. Hundreds of tiny little yokai. Yeah. Well, I think it was mostly just racism. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't even That's think true. that, like, they got that far ahead. This was, like, fully, like, oh, Pikachu was a isis symbol he's not oh, like this is this is like 
peak like, Wait, like 2000 Isis, yes as isis the goddess or isis is isis the uh the, oh, the organization organization okay. terrorist group <laughs> organization this is an archer <laughs> the terrorist group I made yeah, an Archer I love, reference. Yeah, I know. I, I know pop culture. I love, I love that show. Um, it's it's almost done now. I have mixed feelings about it. I will be honest. I'm happy it's almost done because I feel like it went on too long. But it's yeah, not, I feel like it should have been forever. It didn't cross into the realm of The Simpsons where now you're just like, but why? Why is it still happening? I think my big issue with the Simpsons is watching it become everything that they parodied. And that's sad. Cause so out of all the weird things that I have like very encyclopedic knowledge of the Simpsons is usually one that shocks people. Uh, but I was a child of the nineties. So what else was I going to have encyclopedic knowledge on outside of Sicilian mafia crime families, which I did have encyclopedic knowledge of as a child. Uh, it's just sad watching it become everything it lampooned and that it's been a slow death. People like to make it sound like this all happened like in the last like couple of years. This has really been a very slow decaying that I think accelerated, but its death started many, many years ago. But um, okay, children being weird and having psychic powers is one a thing that we are deeply concerned about because then it implies that children can see things that we can't and that they can't process it, which is the big concern. Um, but also because kids are seen as like pure and, you know, their minds are uncluttered by doubt that they can see things. Um, I have a love hate relationship with this trope because there's a part of me that understands it. And as someone who did have like paranormal um, things happen to me as a kid, I can kind of get why people assume that. But as a writing trope, I think it's lazy as hell, and I wish people would stop. Well, for this, too, I think the biggest fear with Danny's parents is they realize suddenly that he can see things that they don't want him to see. Things that they right. think that, he, that they have locked away in their minds and that will never hurt anybody again. Right. Um, especially like when he's talking about his parents possibly getting a divorce and the, the doctor bringing it up and they're like, we've never even talked about that in public. We've never talked about that. And the, mm. the whole thing being like her sitting Jack down and being like, we need to talk and him being like, give me seven days, like give me a week. Yeah. And if you still feel the same way, we'll talk about it then. Like even they don't talk about the possibility of breaking up or divorce. They refuse to. And that this, five-year-old is like hey remember when you guys were talking about getting divorced right it's that children have this like knowledge that they shouldn't have because you know they can't process it which again i think is like really upsetting because children aren't dumb you know what's cracking and up I think, right now too? yes we made a simpsons reference and we still haven't talked about the fact that they parody this on their show as well because we're not going to uh, okay, we're going to talk about alcoholism very, very briefly. Alcoholism is one of the oldest vices 
Um, and it is considered to be one of the worst vices, which I think is hilarious, is that you will have books where there are characters that are eating cocaine, but the town drunk is the bad guy. Um, a lot of that is socioeconomic and class-based. A lot of that is also rooted in very, very valid fears that men that were alcoholics often beat their wives and hurt their children and did crime, which isn't false, but is a short version of the story. Um, mm -hmm. There's also the guy that pioneered anesthesia in dentistry who got so high off his gourd on fucking ether that he slashed a woman's face with a scalpel. That's a real thing that happened. So, like, there's a lot of concerns about people that do substances. Um, and alcohol is usually the one that is easiest for people to rationalize as bad. Um, you can also see some very not subtle Stephen King stuff in there because he has openly struggled with alcohol and substance issues. You can tell because every book copy of it comes with a thin dusting of cocaine residue from all of the drugs he was doing when he wrote it. He's also very vocal about it, about yes. the struggles and things that he went through, um, the bullshit that he put his family through. Right. And it's, it's, he, I think he talks about a little bit of it in on writing as well, but probably a lot mm -hmm. of it in on writing. I've never read it. I will admit that. Um, Fair. That's where I kind of failed on the research here. Cause I was like, I got, I got stuff to do. I don't have time to read three books. I'm not um, mad at you. Well, not not on this at least um but yeah a lot a lot of what we have issues with too um as a culture we struggle with the concept of substance abuse um we do we see it as a moral failing where a lot we of do. times it's a socioeconomic thing it's um yes. a you don't have work you have been put in a situation that is fucking impossible to deal with what is something that's going to numb this for a hot minute? Um, right. But I'm not, but I will say alcohol is one of these most destructive substances that is easily accessible on the market. Um, yeah. It is not something that I vilify. Okay. Like obviously we have a podcast where we drink um, or I did before I took medication. So <laughs> here's the thing, like having a glass of wine isn't a problem. Having no. some beers with your friend isn't a problem. No. Finishing off seven bottles of Smirnoff every three days is a fucking problem. Also, because you're drinking Smirnoff. Have some self-respect. A lot of but it is, is this attempt to numb yourself. And the more you do mm -hmm. it, the more your body adapts to it. Mm -hmm. Um and the easier it is to get lost in it and the easier yeah. it is to shut off the parts of your brain that go, maybe this is a bad idea. But I also want to talk about again, that racial and socioeconomic difference, because I, I used to work for ad agencies. I still do. And I remember the closest I ever got to developing a drinking problem was when I was working at an ad agency, we would put rum chata in our coffee. A lot of us had bottles of alcohol in our like, storage lockers where we kept our work files we regularly drank at lunch after work we would drink as like a form of creative bonding 
But that was all considered okay because it was white men with jobs. Mm -hmm. That was all and considered to be, yes. It was that joke of what's classy if you're rich, but trashy if you're poor. Exactly. Exactly. So it was some, It was one of those things that like, I didn't recognize that I was having a problem until I was going out with friends. And it's like, oh, you've had four mimosas and not two mimosas. Two mimosas is a perfectly okay way to enjoy brunch. Four to five is a cry for help. That's a concern. Or when I was drinking bottles of champagne by myself in my apartment. That's a concern. So I think alcoholism for me, I guess, again, like one of the reasons why I am not necessarily loose with it. It's I understand that so often it's demonized in people, usually people of color and queer people, women. It is much heavier to be sick or even for white people that are lower class mm -hmm. it is all tied up in classism socioeconomics race and sexuality and i'm very acutely aware of that i mean you think about you know the puritanical movements of the 17 and 1800s while the kings in england are drinking nothing but champagne off of titties but you want to get mad at people for drinking bathtub gin? It's the same problem, just with different socioeconomics. And You're not one of mad. The most, one of the most destructive periods of our country's history was the teetotal movement. And it was the, um, the banning of alcohol in the United States because it didn't make people stop drinking. It just made them stop drinking safely. Um, which right. Is something like horrible. Wood grain alcohol, man. Yeah. Alcohol that was blinding people and killing them, but they were like, I'm so used to this at this point in time. And it was, there was no movement to be like, let's wean you off of alcohol. Let's get you into a program where you can talk to somebody because it didn't exist. It was, you right. are failing as a human being. Like that was how right. you were treated. Right. And a lot of those movements came down, again, particularly hard on people that were poor, people of color that were drinking to escape the horrors of the time. Um, we talked about this. We talked about Frederick Douglass, where he became a model of temperance for black people, because a lot of people love to condemn drinking in black people without understanding all of the reasons why black people drink. Mm hmm. So Frederick Douglass became this excellent model of temperance saying, listen, I above everyone else understand why you want to numb yourself. It is hell out there. However, we need you to stay as, you know, able to comprehend it as possible because that is the only way that you can exact change. So alcoholism is weird. Um, but I also don't know if this particular work was great at framing Jack Torrance's demons as alcohol, as personality, or as demon possession. I'm not sure. It's always it's great muddled. at vilifying... It's muddled. It's always great at vilifying Jack. But out of all the things he does, him occasionally enjoying liquor too much tends to fall pretty low on the rungs. Well, and the, a lot of the descriptions, too, are things of, like, them hitting that bicycle in the street, freaking out. Yes. Um, they are, 
things that are fairly common occurrences when you're drinking heavily and not taking care of yourself and not taking care of others. And again, not mm -hmm. vilifying people who are going through a real struggle. It is, it is fucking hard to get off alcohol. It's um, hard. It is, it, it becomes a ritual too. You get used to, I have this little glass of wine with me at night when I read, or I have, you know, this tumbler full of ice and gin and mixed with a little bit of tonic because it's fun. Um, Anyway, I lost my train of thought there, so we're going to be 100% honest about that. Well, um, I remember seeing something about, like, wine mom culture. Or, yes. like, oh, like, oh, the wine mom. It's like, oh, I have a little bit of wine in my tumbler while I'm taking care of my kids. That's a cry for help. That's not okay. Like, that's not all right. And, like, how everything that you can buy a mom is, like, wine-related, that's a problem. That's deeply concerning that, like, I remember um, when I was working at that podcast studio, I was looking for a birthday present for uh, our head producer. First of all, don't ever try to shop for a man that you're not fucking. There were five different listings for something labeled a cum rag. I'm sorry, what? There were five different listings for things that were labeled as cum rags. That had like semen icons on them. This is my boss, who I'm not fucking. <laughs> yeah, no, no, thank you. Urban bullets or cum rags. Those were the only things that I could find. I eventually just was a good empathetic cancer and got him something that he could use. But yeah, don't shop for men that you aren't trying to sleep with. It's impossible. <laughs> Can you talk to your parents? My parents are dead. They get flowers. <laughs> and so Sorry. far, dad hasn't complained. Dead parent comedy. It's like, my parents are dead. They get Walmart flowers. And so far, no one has placed a complaint. <laughs> so far. Uh, okay. The hotel is a metaphor for mental health. I mean, it is in a sentence. Everything looks okay on the outside. And then you have this boiler that's going to explode if you don't take care of it. Yeah, the boiler's trauma. Uh, or, yeah, or we were joking about that earlier today as we were replacing the water heater downstairs, which it seemed like a really funny time as this was going on. My husband goes, okay, well, you know, this whole thing here is so that if there's too much heat or there's too much pressure, it'll release. He goes, I watched mm -hmm. this thing on Mythbusters. The only way you can really make it a bomb is if you block that off. And I go, I've read The Shining. I know what will happen. Thank you very much. And he just starts like looking at me like, what, what are you talking about? Can we also talk about like the level of nerd that is, I've read The Shining. I know what I'm doing. This is like full, this is like fully me being like, I'm a doctor. I've watched all 15 seasons of ER. See, I'm glad I never reached the levels of like that TV show from the 90s, The Pretender, because I, I know that if I was a an attractive white man, I probably would have walked in and be like, yeah, I can do open heart surgery. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I've watched all 15 seasons of ER and all nine of House. I got this. Do you watch Chicago are... MD? Because that, that's no. what Brianna's obsessed with. Oh, I'm Brianna, get better taste. Go show her house. I, I, I tease her. I go. Is she old enough mm. to watch house? <laughs> I, 
she's probably old enough to watch house she she knows she's so smart she's there are eight seasons smart. of house not nine and that's where i just want to be like it gets worse from here <laughs> Yeah, the 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 gifted child to struggling semi-alcoholic. Uh, yeah, she's old enough to watch House. Show her House. We'll watch. Okay, so after we go see the Five Nights at Freddy movie. I want to see that. Isn't it going to be on Peacock? Fun. I'm not watching it at home. Okay. I didn't know if they had it on. I didn't even know if it was going to theaters. Of course it's going to theaters. I will go in the theatrical experience dressed as William Afton, and I will not be judged. I believe you, I I believe love you will. I love the purple man because, of course, I do. <laughs> She's had a good Sorry, run. My so neighbors, yes. My neighbors have decided that they need to weed eat as close to the fence as possible right now. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, she's had a good run. It's time to show her house. Oh, God. At Although, least I'm not injecting her? her to 15 seasons of ER with my favorite arc of a small misogynist losing to a helicopter twice. I hate the fact that I know what you're talking about because we've been friends for a while. Good. It was the opening bit on this on last week's last week tonight. And it's like, why is this made for me? Because this is specifically my favorite part of ER. My other favorite part is the early 90s part where it's George Clooney before he's really famous. And he's like a shitty, like he's, he's a womanizer. He's George Clooney. Uh, so like because he's a womanizer and doesn't really have his life together, all of his friends are like constantly negging him. And there's like one scene where his friend Dr. Green is like, You're not that attractive, Doug. And it's like, it's literally George Clooney. It's literally like 90s George Clooney. And it's like, Okay. I mean, he 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 is, though. It's like, you're not that hot, you're not that great, you're not that good of a lover. And it's like it's literally like 90s George Clooney. So it's just like is that like the Barbie movie with the note to the casting directors? If you want to make this point, don't cast Margot Robbie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like if, if you're trying to, if you're trying to neg a womanizer, don't make it George Clooney in the 1990s. Um, okay. The main character is Stephen King. We talked about Jack Torrance is Stephen King down to the alcoholism, spousal abuse, and, <laughs> and being a hack writer. Like we said, writers like to get things out of their system, especially their fears. Yep. I just write porn about problematic fictional characters. Hey, it gets the job done. Cheaper than therapy. All right. Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about uh, Stephen King? Yes. So he was born in Portland, Maine on September 21st, 1947. He's very much alive still. I'm like knocking on wood because last time we did that, there was an issue. Anyway, um, when oh, he was a kid, this it's my favorite thing. When he was a kid, uh, his dad fucked off to buy cigarettes and never came back. I and love that. Amanda and I had a whole conversation about how there are certain classes that this gets ass assigned to and how it's not yep. necessarily true. It's not everybody that you think it's going to be. But anyway, his mom was yep. a fucking champion, got them through like some of the worst parts of their life. Um, there is an anecdote that is told often, and Stephen King, I've even seen him bring it up in an interview before. Um, evidently, he came home one day, and he was just very blank-faced, and he had walked home by himself, and he was way too young to be walking home by himself. 
and supposedly he saw his friend get hit by a train. Um, he says he has no memory of this incident, but evidently his mom used to talk to him about it. So that's a thing. Um, you'll see that get brought up every once in a while. Um, who knows if it's true? We don't really, it, I don't know. These, these stories grow up around writers. Um, Stephen King more so than most. Um, he was a huge reader as a kid. Um, he always was trying to find ways to scare himself. He, he's said in interviews before he loved scaring himself and then spent the whole night with the lights on. Um, one of the books he found in the attic after his dad fucked off was The Lurking Fear and Other Stories by H.P. Lovecraft, which is going to stick with you, even no matter your feelings on Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. um, so a bookmobile driver once recommended him Lord of the Flies. That became a huge inspiration to him. And it's also why certain areas of his books are known as Castle Rock, which later became a TV show, which mm -hmm. fucked me up, but that's another there. there. Um, his first published story came out when he was in high school. It was called I Was a Teenage Grave Robber in Comics Review. He did not get paid for it, um, which mm. is the plight of the writer. Um, but it did spark the joy of being published. And what's really interesting to me, too, is how Jack Torrance in, in The Shining celebrates se or selling one story. Like, it is, mm -hmm. it is true because you get so many rejections as a writer. Uh, anytime you're trying to publish something, um, through a major group or anything like that, you get a stack and it is heartbreaking. You just like kind of want to jump off a cliff. So again, mm -hmm. that combination of alcoholism and writers makes sense. Anyway, his first story that he actually sold for money was called The Glass Floor and it was two startling mystery stories. I think he made like 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I read that somewhere. Um, he worked a lot of jobs when he was at the University of Maine, including working as a janitor, a gas station attendant, an industrial laundry worker. Like mm -hmm. he got around doing the jobs and, and making it through things. Um, he ended up meeting a woman named Tabitha Spruce, who later became mm -hmm. Tabitha King, at a writing workshop. Um, they graduated in 1970, which is the same year their daughter was born, and they got married in 1971 and are still together. She's a very patient, loving woman. <laughs> Um, I would love to see her writing, honestly. Um, this book, The Shining, was his King's actually third published novel, but his first hardcover bestseller. So there was mm -hmm. Carrie and then Salem Thought, I think, was the second. Um, so the a lot of his books initially started taking place in Maine, and then he's like, I'm going to go out and do something new with The Shining. Um, he wrote his first book, Carrie, on his wife's electric typewriter because he could not afford his own. Um, he wrote the first three pages of it, thought it was terrible, mm -hmm. threw it in the trash. And Tabitha went, nah, this is great. You got to keep going. If you're having issues writing women, I will help you, which I, I think is hilarious and wonderful. Um, and it ended up, even after getting rejected multiple times, Carrie was purchased and became a pretty big hit. Became it became one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, so he did have a lot of personal experiences with alcoholism, obviously. Um, in 1974, he went to the Stanley Hotel. He was, again, looking for a new place to go. Evidently, according to the story he tells, he put out an atlas of the U.S., ended up pointing to Boulder, Colorado, and went, you know what? Let's go check it out. So in October 1974, they went to the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. Shout out mm -hmm. the Stanley. Um, again, I warned you about this. So... If y'all are into uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk at all, 
or into the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult, which is now the Newkirk Museum. Um, two other besties are Connor Randall and Carl Pfeiffer, who are the two that created the Estes Method. Um, if you're into ghost hunting at all, you've probably heard of the Estes Method. If you haven't, what it involves is taking one of those SB7 boxes, which is really just basically a radio scanner. It scans through the channels really quickly. Um, you attach noise-canceling headphones, you blindfold yourself, and then somebody goes into the other room and asks questions. And the person who is attached to the box and is blindfolded gives the answers. So yes. it's designed so that even if you could hear a little bit, you, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what questions are being answered. And it is crazy some of the shit that happens with this. Um, there are obviously some severe skeptics towards it. I've seen it work. I've been the person who's been the receiver before. It is fucking bonkers. Because you're just like, I'm just saying what I'm hearing. Just saying what I'm hearing. And people in the other room are like, holy shit, do you know what you just said? And you're like, I have, I can't hear you. I don't. Anyway. Mm -hmm. But anyway, random aside, the Estes Method is super popular. You're going to see it all over television shows and stuff like that. Always want to give a shout out to Connor Randall and Carl Pfeiffer because they are the ones who or created it. And unfortunately, they usually don't get mentioned when other people are using it. So, <laughs> so they go to the Stanley Hotel. It is mm -hmm. already creepy and the Stanley is haunted, um, as many episodes of television shows will show you. Yes. Um, it is a really cool place. I went there when I was way too young to understand or care and I'm heartbroken about that. I was very, very little. It was 1990. I think it was like six or seven, um, more likely six. And I just remember being like, this is the weirdest place I've ever been, but not really remembering anything else. Um, mm -hmm. evidently they had dinner at one of the tables and it was, they were like some of the last folks for the season. So it was really quiet, really creepy. And he just let his imagination run wild. And he's like, okay, I have a basis for a story now. Um, so that's where we get the shining. Um, yes. What's weird too is so he, obviously there are all sorts of stories and stuff that grew up around him about how he's very bizarre. He's, He's a normal dude for the most part. He just has a really interesting mind. People always ask him where the stories come from. The guy reads, y'all. He reads. Yeah, he's, he's a nerd. He's a nerd. He's, he's one of us. Um, weird shit that happened to him. In 1999, he was walking on the side of the road and he got hit by a passing car. It was a blue van, supposedly. And it shattered his hip. The doctors initially thought they were going to have to amputate his legs. Um, he had five surgeries in 10 days. It was incredibly physically traumatic, um, but he got through it and he survived. He can walk, obviously, which what's crazy to me is like thinking about the injuries that he ascribed to Wendy Torrance. And then he gets into mm -hmm. this huge accident and struggles with that. Um, obviously not the exact same type of injuries, but what happened was his, um, I think it was his manager and one other person went and they bought the van that hit him so that it would not end up on eBay because this was the days of eBay. Remember when they had the um, uh, Apple white van from the, that cult in San San Diego. It was like, yes. the van went on. So it became a thing. eBay was selling murder vehicles left and right. Jack Kevorkian's van is now owned by uh, the dipshit who's in ghost adventures. Zach Baggins. 
Thank you. Um. Anyway, <laughs> they bought the car and had it crushed so that it didn't end up on eBay. And Stephen okay. King said the only thing he was sad about that was that he wanted to smash the fucking car himself. I don't think he said fucking, but I'm aspiring it to it because that feels like uh, it. Also... A brief aside about Zach Baggins and his stuff. My favorite, least favorite thing about ghost adventures is going to a place or doing something that is obviously haunted and then being shocked when something paranormal happens. What bothers me is how disrespectful he is towards both the living and the dead. Yeah, um, I'm not. I th that was not said in praise yeah. of him. I oh, think I he's know. a. I, know. I think he's he's a hot truck. He's the Guy Fieri of the paranormal society. And then he gets busted for things like plagiarism all the time. He gets. Yeah, like I, th th that was not said in praise of him, but it's just it's one of my favorite things about his particular like brand of paranormal investigation is doing something that is obviously haunted and then being like genuinely afraid of the consequences of those actions. I get ahead of it's, myself. It's one of those no better, do better things. I'm going to be a hundred percent honest with y'all. 15 years ago, I had a crush on Zach Baggins for about five minutes. And that was because I was drinking heavily and watching ghost adventures with my friends. And I had not been late in a very long time. And I went, I don't think I have a problem with this MMA fighter looking bro. Wait, nope, nope. I'm good. I'm good. I, I got over it real fast. But I feel like in transparency, everybody should know. Anyway. Who did I have um, a crush on 15 years ago when I was 18 years old? Um, probably some probably some problematic comic book character. You know what? No, I had um I might be slightly off of this, but I do remember when Watchmen came out, the Zack Snyder one, I really liked the comedian too much. Me too. I was actually just gonna say at one point in time I almost cosplayed as the comedian and then I was like, no. Okay. That was no, literally the I next year. That was the next year at 19. But uh I remember uh <laughs> remember thinking i like the comedian a little too much oh uh, yeah it's almost like it's obvious that i have that my dad's dead it's almost like it's obvious I had a, all right a little bit of crush on ozymandias so i think i was I just so upset at how he was neutered for the yeah. movie I mean, he's he's a good he's hot he's a good actor uh, he's meets Matthew good. Like he's a he's he's a fine actor. For megalomaniacs is the problem. It's reading the Lock Tomb series and realizing that the guy you have a crush on is probably the bad guy and is extremely problematic. And realizing that everyone you have a crush on in the book series is extremely problematic. <laughs> so to live it back to Ozzy Mandius, I remember the first time I watched The King's Man, uh there's Captain Morton, who is um, Charles Dance's, like, fuckboy assistant. And I'm like, wow, he's really attractive. And there's the villain called The Shepherd, who's an angry Scotsman, who sounds like David Tennant, but isn't David Tennant. And I'm like, wow, he's also really hot. Spoiler for the Kingsman, it's the same guy. Morton is the Shepherd, because he's trying to sabotage British society to make them pay for all the ills that they've done to Scotland. That's his literal evil plan. So he causes World War One to make Britain pay. That's his literal plan. 
And I remember seeing him and being like, why is he hot and why do I like him? And then in credits, it's Matthew Good who played Ozymandias. And it's like, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. You may proceed. I'm just saying, if anybody's watching Our Flag Means Death this season and you're watching Taika in the first few episodes going, I really, really, really shouldn't be letting this work for me, but it is. <laughs> I confess something. Sure. I don't like modern Taika Watiti. I think okay. he's in his like Lin-Manuel Miranda phase where I loved him when he was like a weird offbeat indie creator. Like the first What We Do in the Shadows. Not that current What We Do in the Shadows is bad. I think it's just too popular. It's very different. This is me being, but it is. yeah, it's different and it's way too popular, which is I'm acknowledging as me being a hipster, but like, I don't think that modern Taika is that funny or that radical. It's fine. But it just feels like he's dumbed himself down a lot to be approachable to mainstream audiences, which is not what I'm looking at Taika Waititi for. If that makes sense. Eyeliner and leather pants was working for me, but okay. I mean, and that's valid. Like I that's I'm not I'm not shaming anyone for that. I just like people talk about him and I'm just like, he's fine. He's fine. He's I liked Jojo Rabbit probably more than I should have because to me, that's old Taika. That's being subversive. That's being weird. That's being offbeat. But I also acknowledge that like no one else is thinking of him in that way anymore. I'm a weird hipster. Anyways. So going back to Stephen King, he is still publishing yes. today. I think he just had a book come out called Holly. Um, a ton of his stuff has become TV shows, um, mm -hmm. films, random shit here and there uh tons mm -hmm. of fan fiction Lost and this fan includes fiction. things like carry it the shining under the dome rose red thinner the langoliers castle rock kingdom hospital which i liked way too much um and the stand mm -hmm. the stand still fucks me up to this day um i get into the whole captain trips thing and yeah anyway when covid first hit and everybody was like having to stay home i was like Oh God, we're all gonna die. Anyway, um, he, like we said too, he also plays random roles in a lot of the films and TV shows where he just kind of has a walk-on part. Um, yes. One of the things I absolutely love, his son Joe Hill is also a horror writer. He goes by Joe Hill because he didn't want to uh, live the life where he was living as a Nepo baby. And the one of the guys from IDW from Lock and Key, um, as in like the comic book before it became a TV show on Netflix, mm -hmm. said that when they were signing contracts, all of a sudden he gets this this contract that says Joseph King, and he's like, "Who the fuck is Joseph King?" And then it clicks, and he went, "Oh fuck! Well, why don't we use that to promote?" And he's like, "No, nobody, not doing it. No." Yeah. Also. Like, He's a really his son, <laughs> his son helped solve the Lady of the Dunes case, mm -hmm. which, thank you, BuzzFeed Unsolved. I'm like, wait a minute, why do I know this? Yeah, he helped solve All the right. Lady of the Dunes case. I'm gonna unleash you. You're you're fully welcome to discuss the Kubrick version. Okay, it's been two hours and I've had malt liquor in my system, so this is actually going to be the tamest version of this. Uh, so Stanley Kubrick. 
made one of the most famous versions of The Shining that you could ever possibly get. It is atmospheric. It is haunting. The casting is great. However, Kubrick is a monster. Like, there is a lot of conversation about separating art from artist. I don't think you can do that. He literally terrorizes Shelley Duvall through the entire film, including isolating her, being particularly cruel with her, and demanding scenes be done over and over again. Some could argue that he does that to produce the best art. You'll see that later with other movies of his, like Eyes Wide Shut, as we mentioned. And even other directors like Quentin Tarantino tends to employ that logic a lot, where it's like, oh, I had to put my hands on this actress to choke her. That's how the scene got good. And like... William Friedkin or, with The Exorcist? Right. Or I had to have Uma Thurman almost die in a death trap car because otherwise the scene wouldn't look good. And there's a part of me that so badly wants to accept that. And increasingly I can't. Now, I have a much easier time with it with Quentin Tarantino because I like his movies a lot. And I have a much easier time separating him being problematic from the art that it produced never giving it a pass but I own this shit on DVD he's not still making money off of me Kubrick especially after he died these conversations became more and more prevalent but much harder to have people treat him almost like this patron saint of directing that we will never have another director like Stanley Kubrick but what they're describing is unfortunately the abuse of really actors but particularly the abuse of women he was yeah. like this on all of his sets and that is not up to me to decide for you how you feel about that are there still kubrick movies that i'll watch honestly no kubrick to me ranks very very high in like the criterion collection of if you want to say that you know film you need to see these but I don't think that you need to like them. And I have much deeper concerns for you if they're regular watches for you. Like, if I ever go on a date with a guy who's like, oh, yeah, I watch A Clockwork Orange every year. Okay, cool. You're a murderer. You're a murderer. You're a murderer and a sociopath and I'm going to end up in the trunk. Because that's not a movie that you need to come back to regularly. If, you're, if, if whoever I'm talking to is like, oh, yeah, Eyes Wide Shut is my favorite movie. I'm going to end up in the back of your trunk. Like, that's not okay. I think see it, get the perspective. I think enjoy content about it. It's like one of my favorite things, and we have a bunch of resources listed, are essays about Kubrick movies. Because he is a fantastic director and filmmaker. And you can appreciate that in a video essay where you do not glamorize him as a person. And especially modern video essayists are great at balancing the two of saying, yes, he was a trash person, but unfortunately that trash person made some very, very cool shit. We also have, so the, you, it goes back and forth too about Shelley Duvall leaving acting after The Shining about yes. whether it was Kubrick or whether it was her brother's spine cancer. It can be both, you guys. <laughs> it can be both. Um, well, and people and also, because, like, she recanted a lot of what she said, or at least, like, softened a lot of what she said later. And 
that always throws people because it's like, well, was she lying? Is she covering for him? No, but you got to understand in Hollywood too, the Weinstein thing just became something that like he got punished for. Okay. Right. Brett like, Ratner, Brian Singer. Yeah. 1980s when this movie or 1980 when this movie was made mm -hmm. if you were a woman in hollywood and you mouth well mouthed off sounds awful but i mean like if you said anything about like hey i was abused on set you didn't work anymore um because again it was that playing back to this concept of male genius of right look at me i've invented the kubrick stare you know i've invented this way of getting these performances out of actresses okay if you want a really good performance don't allow her to have an ash that's like five inches long on the fucking cigarette asshole like what the fuck like there are ways to like there are non-abusive ways to get great performances out of women and Again, like, I, I mean, I'm by, please do not let me be your end test for any of this stuff. Because I struggle with that with Tarantino on a regular basis. Inglorious Bastards, one of my favorite movies. Knowing that he put his hands on an actress to choke her out because that's how he got the best scene. I don't like that. And I now just skip Ooh. over that part of the movie. Like, that's something that I have a hard time parsing with and i love that movie my favorite part of inglorious bastards was seeing it in theaters and walking out and hearing someone say i didn't know that's how world war ii ended <laughs> and losing what little remaining faith i had in cultural and media literacy is incredibly important Okay, but can you imagine if that's how World War II ended? Oh my god. Could you imagine if that's how World War II ended? Is a Jewish woman who owns a cinema plots a coup d'etat to blow up Hitler, and there's a bunch of Jewish American soldiers led by a literal quote-unquote Apache white man? This is the best. I, I wish that's how World War II actually ended. Rather than a war of attrition and two atomic bombs. We didn't need that many Russians. That's a joke. That's a joke. Based on Stalingrad. I laugh every time. Have you ever seen the, the uh, BBC? Oh, it's not BBC. Oh, maybe it is BBC. I don't know. The show Peep Show with Mitch yes. and Webb. Yes. <laughs> when he's flirting and he goes into the whole thing about Stalingrad, that is just me and every special interest I have. And every time I just want to be like, I'm so sorry for this. I'm so sorry. I'm very, very blessed to have many neurotypical friends who understand. Like, it's become a thing where I go, I am about to go off on blank. I apologize. Please feel free to ignore the next 20 text messages that are going to come through the group chat. <laughs> oh, all right. That means that we also have to talk about uh, there is a 1997 one. That was filmed at the actual Stanley that I don't think anyone watched. <laughs> I feel like it was on Sci-Fi Network, but it's Probably. been a long enough time. Um, supposedly, it was really good. I've never actually seen it, and I've I only seen either. half of Doctor Sleep. And that's because and my friend is like, "My friend is like, you're gonna love Rose the Hat," and she's not wrong, but that's a problem. <laughs> 
me watching most things like you're gonna love this character it's like this character is awful god damn it uh so dr sleep is the sequel that came out a few years ago it's really really good from what i've heard i didn't need a sequel to this just gonna be honest with you i didn't i didn't need oh something i want to point out and you probably figured this out if you've watched dr sleep or read the book or mm -hmm. read the shining actually the actual book tony the little boy that lives in his mouth anthony yes. is his middle name it's hey. just him. Hey. Hey. But, uh, but that gets blocked up. Also, the infamous red rum thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, Ewan McGregor is there. Yeah. That's the other reason I started watching it. Ewan McGregor makes an appearance in ER where he plays a guy who is fresh off the boat from Ireland and uh robs a convenience store and ends up killing a guy and he's just like waxing philosophic the entire time because this is like just after the troubles happened so he comes to america to meet one of his cousins but his cousin is like a low-time criminal so they shoot up a convenience store and ends up getting shot dead in the middle of the street by the cops and juliana margulies has to rescue him and she ends up getting like severe stockholm syndrome for him and it's a whole like episode <laughs> So here's something that drives me crazy. In the UK, where yes. you are from, based yes. on just your, your accent, there's yes. extreme accent racism, okay? Like, yes. oh, you're poor. In the United States, we regularly cast Scottish people as Irish people, Irish yes. people as Scottish people. We don't yes. understand what a Welsh accent is to save our fucking lives. Because, okay. Okay, Michael, I'm not, okay? I have my not Republican to you. I am not saying that this is okay. What I'm saying is, is that it was the 1990s and it was ER. He was also in Moulin fucking Rouge. Calm down. Well, like, Killian Murphy is Irish. Very, very Irish. Everyone knows he's Irish. And I absolutely love in, um, God, come on. My brain just does not work anymore. Um, when he's in the television show I was obsessed with briefly where he plays a Birmingham fucking gangster. Somebody asks him if he wants scotch scotch, or if he wants Irish whiskey. And just the Irish look is my favorite. Like where he's just like, I'm going to say it. This is the one time I get to tell you. Oh my God. I can think of Nick Cave doing the theme song. Red right hand. It's going to piss me off. Give me a minute. Peaky blinders. Thank you. I was like briefly obsessed with Peaky Blinders. Keep no, I'm not mind, kidding. My brain doesn't work anymore. Person, this is me who genuinely did not know who Chris Pratt was because I vacated Western media to go watch anime and documentaries for 10 years. Why do I, I know more than I, I vanished? Because okay. my brain is like full of weird little file folders now and they're all thrown on the table. And I'm Valid. frantically searching through these file folders to find the information that I have, which is why, y'all, we have outlines for this show so yes. that I can keep on track. Because otherwise I'm yes. like, what? And they're collaborative outlines so I can go in and fix all the grammatical errors. Uh, so our resources are mostly going to be talking about The Shining, the movie, which, again, I think is a great way to 
appreciate the shining. It's appreciating the work that was done without glorifying the man. And I think that that is possible. Again, do not let me be your litmus test on any of this shit. I still like a lot of very problematic things. I still like a lot of the Brian Singer movies that came out in the 2000s, unfortunately. But at least I didn't watch uh, those horrible um, Christmas card videos that, um, oh my God, wasn't it? It was Kevin Spacey who did them. Yeah, so Kevin Spacey, after he was fired from House of Cards, did all these oh, like in character yeah. as Frank Underwood, like Christmas videos where he's like, now, if you really thought I was that bad, you wouldn't have kept wanting me. And it's just like, <laughs> he's just like vaguely hot and threatening, but also like, sir, you have no idea what you've just been accused of and you clearly lack self-aware. He does like three or four of these like weird, like Christmas Yule log videos where he's clearly someone who doesn't understand what consent is. But, like, in character is Frank Underwood, who also clearly doesn't understand what consent is. I will say, watching that show, I was very delighted when he pushed Kate Mara under a train. But that's just because I don't like Kate Mara. I'm sorry, Kate. I'm sure you're a wonderful, lovely human being. But, yeah, that, that show was a lot. The, the crazy thing is it's based on a British show. Um, and... That one is also fucking bonkers. Yeah, neither of those shows are like solid, well-adjusted shows. All right. Did we is have to read? Huh? Is anything that we watch? <laughs> um, I watched a lot of Mr. Bean and Faulty Towers and Are You Being Served and Red Dwarf and Chef and the okay. Two Fat Ladies. So, okay. yeah, some of it's well-adjusted. I watched a lot of Red Dwarf as a kid. That that makes sense. I've watched so much like British television. Like Faulty Towers is one of my favorites. And they're trying to reboot Faulty Towers. No, no, yeah. don't do it. Also, don't I watched a lot it. of I watched a lot of Are You Being Served? And like I feel like sometimes Are You Being Served is a fever dream that only I remember because I'll make a reference to it and people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? I loved Are You Being Served. Uh, okay. I never had to read this in school. Uh, I think this is actually my first time, like, read, read, reading the book. Um, I've seen some of it, of course, because I'm a reformed Kubrick stan. Reformed. Um, also, Kevin Spacey had a heart attack three days ago. What? He's still alive, unfortunately, but he did have a heart attack three days ago. He was at a film festival! I was, I went out of the state for like a hot minute and diane feinstein dropped dead and so did michael gambit and i was like what i was on a plane what happened yeah. okay so season three of er ewan mcgregor plays this literal man named duncan stewart <laughs> oh my god His oh literal my god <laughs> His name is literally Duncan Stewart. What is it like Edward McSmith? Is this that's what that feels like? No, his name is Duncan Stewart. I just and have to remind myself it was the 90s. 
it, it was, was the 90s. It was literally, it was literally like 19, it was 1997. Uh, so he goes in with his, with his American cousin uh, and he shoots up a convenience store. So this is like 90s shoot up. And he's just doing like the most in this scene where he's like, it's me who shot the man. Like, he's just like all accent and like melancholy. No, it's my responsibility. I'm the one who killed him. And just like flailing. It, it feels like, a messed out version of train spotting. Oh my god. Train spotting is all about drugs, bro. It's a more messed out. It's a messed out community heroin. theater. It's a it's a messed out community theater version of train spotting. Go watch the episode. You don't need any context about ER. It's season three, episode 15, The Long Way Round. Juliana Margulies is there looking beautiful. It is 1997 Juliana Margulies looking beautiful and like sympathizing way too quickly. And if you don't know Ewan McGregor, you wouldn't know it's him because it's 1997. He looks like the main character from <laughs> Clockwork Orange. He's just a fucking guy with the most accent waving around a gun. They he Malcolm McDowell him? His name is Duncan Stewart. And he's like shaggy haired and in a sweater. Because how else are you going to know he's Irish? I don't know. I he's been subjugated and his language has been taken away. Walks off camera. I can't wait to get messages about this tonight where you watch this episode and you're just like, I hate you. I can't wait because you're gonna because I I've now given you enough information for that brain of yours to be like I need to see this I know how your brain works I know the machinations of your mind I've now given you enough tantalizing information that you're like I need to see this train wreck I might YouTube it I don't know and I am frankly so excited about the messages that I'm going to get about you watching the inspiring performance of you and McGregor as Duncan Stewart shooting up an American convenience store in Chicago. So last weekend when I was hanging out with my friend, we were joking about, I think it's Woody Harrelson in some movie. His side name is Flavius Kern. And we were like, if we ever like check into a hotel and we're like trying to keep a low profile, it's going to be Flavius Kern. But now I think it's going to be Duncan Stewart. Ricky Goldsworth. (laughs) (laughs) So Tori, you read this for fun, if I'm correct. Yes, I was a very, very pretentious goth girl um, who was why just did trying anyone, to hide her anxiety. Why is anyone shocked that we ended up being like neurodivergent sexual deviants? Why was anyone surprised by that information? Because it's so obvious like, in hindsight, right? Reading freaking Anne Rice books and then moving on to Laurel K. Hamilton and being like, wow, sex sounds amazing. And then sex was very, very disappointing at first. Oh, But that's so, what you get for hooking up with a youth pastor. Yeah, don't hook up with a youth pastor. <laughs> Must marry a youth pastor. You. Oh, to add, so, so Ewan McGregor's character in that ER episode is literally named Duncan Stewart. His cousin's name is James. No. No! No. And they made him Irish? Well, he lives in America. They're cousins. No, but his cousin is from Ireland with a fucking... Yes. 
Scottish ass name. Like the rage that <laughs> is building inside me. The rage. So it's just you and McGregor like a fucking racist sock puppet, just flailing around with a prop gun, just waxing philosophic. He threatens a child multiple times. Like, so there's a kid who like is trying to escape so he could go get help and he finds him and he like grabs the kid like by the waist and puts him in front of a pinball. And she's like, now I want to hear you playing pinball. And like, the kid locks himself in the bathroom because he's a kid and he's a genius. And he's like, come on out, we have hot dogs and we're all having a great time. And it's like, you're holding us hostage. He's not going to believe you. Again, kids just, are not dumb. They're just, just assholes. It's just so funny of him like trying to imagine a scenario that will entice a child who watched you shoot someone and you threatened to kill. It's like, yeah, we're all eating hot dogs out here. Come on now. We're having, we're having a good time. It's just like this whole episode's train wreck. I'm gonna be so mad at you watching this, aren't I? I'm gonna I be so mad at wait. you. Wait, I'm gonna be laid up after sobering up and getting my flu shot, and I cannot wait. The string of messages that I'm going to receive that are going to start with Juliana Margulies is beautiful and ending with what the fuck did you just make me watch? To be fair, that just feels like everything. Every bit of media you give to me is I start off with, wow, all of these people are attractive. What the fuck? Yeah, because it's, it's 1997 Juliana Margulies. Beautiful. Ethereal. A goddess. The pilot of ER is she commits suicide. <laughs> and her friends in the ER try to save her. And they spend seasons one through three making fun of her for trying to kill herself <laughs> yeah because that works out real well with people with depression well she starts making jokes first like it isn't just them because like at first everyone's super awkward about it as you would be but then she starts making jokes about it so everyone makes jokes about it culminating an episode where they give her like this like paper hat like a dick's last resort saying if you ever feel like you need attention just call us because that's why you try to kill yourself <laughs> it was the 90s <laughs> okay our next book Tori we have the return of Baron Von Cheeseplate we're going to be now, reading sorry go ahead. 2000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne now you may be wondering Baron Von Cheeseplate sure has been on the show a lot yeah he gives us money and he's our friend but he also gives us money so if you would like to be on the show and you are wondering about this being a nepotism hire, it is give us some money as a gift. Oh my god. Did you just did you just turn him into a nepo baby? He is. But he's as our me. nepo baby. I mean, he's literally a nepo he, he is. Like this isn't even a read, it's just fact. I've seen his cars. I know him. <laughs> But you might be thinking, hey, this is a nepotism hire. You're correct. Give us some money as a gift. Oh oh. <laughs> and if you want to figure out how to do that, go to unfortunatelyrequiredreading.com. <laughs> yeah, don't go on Twitter. I'm no longer there. I'm sorry. I've been busy. And Twitter is a hellhole. Um, 
But we're thinking about going to other places, including possibly Blue Sky. I haven't decided. We might do threads. I will admit I know nothing about any of them anymore. I just Listen. get mad if I get an alert telling me that something's on X because it looks like a porn site on my phone that pops up. And I'm like, no, why? I didn't put this app on here. When I put it I on, there was a bird. <laughs> when I, we sound so old. When I, when I downloaded this, it was a bird. Oh my God. Can you imagine trying to explain that to people when we're in the, the home later on? Back in my day, there was a bird icon and you did a thing called the tweet. Okay. Mrs. Biggs, it's time to go to get your shower. Yeah, it's it's you need to stop. You need to stop yelling at the begonias. It's time for you to take your medicine. <laughs> give her an extra shot of Thorazine. She's talking yeah. about Facebook again. Uh, give her some Haldol. She said something about MySpace this morning. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's time for some Haldol. She's talking about Zenga. <laughs> <laughs> My God. She's, she's talking about adultfanfiction.net. It's time for an out of it. <laughs> She said something about the live journal. <laughs> Literally said the live journal. <laughs> can we get a, can we get some Demerol? She's talking about a live journal. Uh, so you can find us all over the internet, including Facebook, where we usually one of us is posting memes. Instagram, where we are much more active right now. Uh, I am trying to figure out what to do with Twitter. Unfortunately, right now, when I log on, I am depressed and I hear the void noise, uh, which is not fun. So I'm trying to figure it out. Um, unfortunately, Does the void noise also sound like dial-up used to? Uh, it just sounds like static. Aww. It just sounds like really, really harsh static. Um, but we'll figure it out. But our website is the best place to go uh, for all content relating to us. And if you do have a preference on where you'd like to see us land that isn't Twitter, be it Blue Sky or Threads, let us know. I'm not opposed to either of those. I actually like Blue Sky a lot. It's just been really, really slow to adopt because right now everyone's just waiting to see what happens with Twitter. No one feels comfortable fully abandoning it, but it's hard to keep up with one more platform. Yeah. Like that's kind of where I am because I have it for my other podcast. We're like, yeah, we end up neglecting Blue Sky because most of our audience is still on Twitter. But we keep it as a backup because we know that Elon Musk is going to run this into the ground. We just don't know when. <laughs> he is going to run this into the ground. The question is when. Uh Oh, one thing that we didn't mention in resources is that there is a lore episode about the Stanley Hotel that talks about Stephen King going. I did list it in there because it was back when lore was a good podcast. I was going to say, I was really surprised you mentioned the Mankey in this. Because normally because you're like, was on fire. He did a rabies episode where he didn't even talk about the rabies roulette. And I don't know how you do that. I don't know what rabies roulette is, so I'll be honest. Okay, so Louis Pasteur was like, hey, rabies is kind of a problem. And it's like, yeah. So you already did pasteurization. Why don't you solve it? So he gets this kid who um, possibly has rabies, but no one knows. So he gives him, like, this weird concoction of medications 
that is like ends up being randomized. It is either a placebo, straight up rabies, or like some weird witch doctor voodoo brew. The kid gets much, much worse before he gets better because he did end up giving the kid rabies virus inoculated, but rabies plus rabies equals cure to rabies. I'm not a scientist, but the rabies roulette was Louis Pasteur fucking around and playing God with like children and a virus that is near fatal. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. And a virus that is near fatal. It is still one of the most fatal viruses if you do not know that it's rabies, which is the scariest part. How many people possibly die of rabies because they don't know it's rabies? There's a whole episode of House based on that. I feel like you just need to have a podcast that is just all of the medical shows that you're obsessed with that you know backwards and forwards and just tying them together with one cause each episode. There is, there is literally an episode of House where a homeless woman is brought in and she has this like crazy list of symptoms, high fever, she's afraid of water and she's photosensitive so everyone just thinks that she's crazy turns out she got bit by a bat in one of the abandoned places she was sheltering in and had rabies and they didn't figure out it was rabies until it was much too late and she died and she died partly because everyone was mistreating her because she was homeless they assumed that homeless meant, of course, mentally ill or substance abuser and didn't pay attention to any of her symptoms. Because if any clean person came in with fear of water and photosensitivity, that's fucking rabies. But because she was homeless, they just... Prophyria. <laughs> Prophyria. Uh, but because she was homeless, no one paid attention to her. So she dies this horrible death that very easily could have been treated if they had treated her like a human being. And it ends up being one of the first cases where the black doctor like has to put his biases away because he ends up being a lot like me where like he didn't personally struggle a lot. His family was okay. He's a doctor. So he lacks a lot of the basic empathy that people assume that black people have just because black equals struggle. And everyone makes a big deal like, oh, it's the black doctor who's being the most intolerant. It's like, yeah, shocker. We can be intolerant too. It's almost like that's the problem. Anyways, uh, so yeah, Baron Von Cheese Flight will be back on the show. We're going to talk about 2000 Leagues Under the Sea, a book that people actually have to read in school. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited for it and to have him back on the show. Uh, it's crazy out there. Go get your uh, necessary COVID boosters and your flu shot. Remember, you are not vaccinating for just yourself. You are vaccinating for all the people who can't be vaccinated. Yup. This has nothing to do with just you. I know as Americans that is very, very hard to rationalize. But this isn't just about you. So, go get your flu shot. Pretty sure if you go get your flu shot at Target, they give you like a $5 gift card. That's a whole ass Starbucks. Now I gotta go to Target. Right? That's probably where I'm going after I sober oh. up a little bit. I was just going to H-E-B. Yeah, you can get them at the little clinic at Target. 
Oh, and if you are a person of size, ask if they have longer needles because we have more fat content in our arms. And sometimes that means that the medicine doesn't disperse in our bodies the same way. Oh, I didn't think about that. Amazing how these little things that we don't think about. But yeah, you can ask for longer needles that go a little bit further into sub-Q fat because those short needles probably are stopping at a different level of sub-Q fat if you're a bigger person. Not that it diminishes vaccine efficacy. That is not what I'm saying. It just metabolizes differently. If they don't have those shorter needles, well, one, that's an ADA concern. But I, that doesn't mean, like, don't get the vaccine. Like, oh, short needle, it's not going to work. It's going to work. It's just different. It'll just take There's, a different route. Yeah. It metabolizes in the system differently. There's your fun medical corner fact from Amanda. It's been two and a half hours. <laughs> All right. You probably need to go eat. And yes. I need to at least pretend I'm going to write before I go play a video game. Yeah, I need to go write for Kinktober. So be safe out there. Enjoy this spooky season and go read a book. Bye.